This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. It's great to be at another GYC, isn't it? God has been so gracious to us and brought us here together again in Louisville. Uh, we were just here in August for ASI in the same convention center, and uh, it's good to be back again for GYC. And uh, it's always a privilege to be at a gathering like this. Uh, before we begin, I want to start with a word of prayer, and uh, I'll ask you all to please stand as we do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are here in Louisville this weekend not only to study your word, but to understand it. Not only to pray together, but to pray with others on the streets of the city. Amen. Not only to focus on our message, but to focus on our mission. Amen. And so, Lord, I just pray today as we open your word as we look at some crucial issues that we're facing today in our world, in our church, in Christianity in general, I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be present here because it is your word. It has been given to us, but we want to receive that with the fullest understanding and with hearts filled with humility today. We need your love. We need your grace and we need your wisdom. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be with us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I was not going to present this seminar three weeks ago. I should say this topic three weeks ago. Maybe it was four weeks ago. It was in November which makes it sound like more than four weeks ago now because it's January 2 today. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. I don't know about you. I cannot believe we're in 2020. That sounds like something out of a science fiction. I grew up with, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey. That was a long time ago. Um, for some of you, you don't know what that is. That's all right. Um, but we're here today because God has brought us here today. And we're here today longing for his soon return. I, I basically was asked to present on the topic today of our whole meeting um, by many or by few. And as you know, that's based on a verse that's taken from the story of David and Jonathan, uh, from that context of Saul and Jonathan and David and I, I'm an archaeologist, so that is a very comfortable place for me to be because that's where I've been working for the last 10 years in the world of Saul, David, Jonathan, and we'll talk about some of that today. But um, as I was speaking with our GYC president, Moise, um, I shared with him that just recently I uh, have completed a book um, and a new Sabbath school quarterly that will be studied uh, this year in April. 
with my cousin, Frank Hosel, who um, is an associate at the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference, a systematic theologian. And I told him what the topic was, hermeneutics, and he says, that's what we need at GYC. So for some of you, all of you, um, and for those of you who will be listening, uh, this is a prelude to something that the whole world church will be studying for three months this year, just before general conference session. And so uh, as far as I'm aware, this is the first time our church has dealt in a Sabbath school quarterly with the topic of hermeneutics or how to interpret the Bible. We've, of course, dealt with it probably in different angles and different ways, but as far as I'm aware, and I've looked back a long ways, this is the first time we have dealt with, with this topic. So it's a challenging topic, and it, but it's one that is very much needed today because the issues that we're dealing with and the, the, uh, some of the issues that we're facing in our church are revolving around the issue of hermeneutics. Uh, what is hermeneutics? The field of study which is concerned with how we interpret the Bible because uh, we are approaching the Bible from different places, sometimes from different perspectives, sometimes with different presuppositions and assumptions. Now, the good news is you don't have to wait till April. Hot off the press, just a few days ago, I received the first boxes of this book, and uh, I brought them with me to GYC, so if any of you would like a copy ahead of time to read, uh, that will be going much more in depth than what I can do in four presentations today, uh, we have these available at our booth, and I'll share with you more about that um, in the booth section. It's under Southern Adventist University Institute of Archaeology, and, and we will have these available there. It's the, this is the companion book to the Sabbath School Quarterly. You know there's always a companion book that goes more into depth than what the Sabbath School Quarterly does. And my cousin and I wrote, he's my cousin, by the way, not my brother. Yeah, he is my brother, right? We're all brothers and sisters here, right? <laughs> So anyway, he's closer than a brother to me. I don't have a brother. I have two sisters, and he's very close. Um, but uh, we, we worked on this together. We worked on the Sabbath School Quarterly. We worked on the Teacher's Edition and wrote the Teacher's Edition. That doesn't always happen. And we also wrote the Companion Book. So this has been a two-year process and journey for us. And by the way, this is planned way in advance before these things come out. So this is what we're going to focus on. I could have retitled this presentation or this series interpreting scripture, critical issues today. I like the word scripture because it emphasizes the divine origin of the Bible. And sometimes Bible is good, but scripture I think is even better. What we have in our hands when we open the scriptures is the most unique and transforming book in history. It's composed, as we know, of 66 books, although as we'll discuss in our presentations, that is also under dispute. <laughs> Written over 1,500 years by 40 or so authors scattered across three continents, this book has changed world history forever. The Bible is without equal in maintaining multiple lines of thought from Genesis to Revelation with clarity, even with its diverse authors and the diverse places they come from, with clarity, with great insight, and with a unity that is 
unbelievable when we consider the time span in which this book or series of books were written. The Bible in that sense is remarkable and I believe it is also unique. It was the first book ever translated. It was the first book ever published on a movable type printing press in Europe. I have to qualify that because the Chinese invented the printing press many years earlier. When it was published, and we'll talk a bit about that in the Reformation, uh, it became uh, a bestseller immediately. In fact, the Bible has been a bestseller since it was printed for the first time until today in 2020. I predict until today in 2020, the Bible will still be the number one best-selling book in the world. It hasn't changed over the course of the centuries. Today, 95% of the Earth's population can read it sort of, not maybe in their mother tongue, but in some language that, that is related to that. We have a long ways to go with the 6,500 languages that are out there to get this word in the hands of people around the world. Some people are doing that. And it is the only book to have survived repeated attempts to nullify and destroy it and its contents. I'm speaking about the Diocletian persecutions of the Christians in the early Roman Empire. I'm talking about the French Revolution. I'm talking about postmodern, post-Christian Europe and America today. The Bible is still the Word of God. But there are two things that I would like to say about the Bible in addition to the fact that it has transformed language, it has transformed art, it has transformed literature. There's two things that I want to say about the Bible that makes it unique when compared to any other sacred text of any other major world religion out there today. And that's a bold statement, by the way, because there are huge world religions out there today. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam is growing. But this book is unique in two ways. Those two ways, number one, is that this book is constituted in history. The other... Uh, Sacred scriptures of these other major world religions are very esoteric. They contain the philosophical ideas of the writer or writers. But this book is constituted in history. It means that when God began working in history, that is, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he is intervening in human history. He's creating human history. He's creating humanity, and in that process, he continues to intervene into human history. This is the book that documents his interventions in human history, not only in the past, but also in the future. And that brings us to the second thing that this book is unique about, and that is that this book, when compared to all the other ancient and modern religions of the world, this book consists of almost 30% prophecy. No other work contains prophecy. Those two elements of history and prophecy work intertwined in a way that is unique and that substantiates the Bible as the word of God. 
because we can go back into history and we can test what the Bible says about its history and about the events that took place there. By the way, there are no institutes of Buddhist archaeology in any university that I'm aware of or institutes of Islamic archaeology that I'm aware of because those religions are not interested in human history. They're interested in something else. But there are institutes of biblical archaeology. In fact, that's how archaeology began, out of an interest in understanding the world of the Bible. The whole discipline began that way. And prophecy, prophecy works intertwined. We can test scripture on the basis of history, and we can test scripture on the basis of its prophetic word and how that prophetic word is fulfilled. And if you don't think that this is a prophetic book, you haven't been paying attention to modern history and to what's happening in the world today. I can't, don't have time to go into so many of those things today. So our outline for these uh, moments that we're together, and I've got to start moving, is, uh, is this. These are our four presentations today. How did we get here? How did this book come to be? How did the 66 books of this book come to be? How, how is it that we have what we have here today? Uh, that's an important topic to think about, the origin of Scripture. We're not only going to talk about the physical origin of Scripture, but we're going to talk about the divine origin of Scripture, not only the human side of it, but the divine side of it. And the tendency in our world is to emphasize one or the other. And it is a mystery that combines both that is important. The second presentation, which is immediately following this one, do historical matters really matter, the Bible, history, and science? Some people don't believe that the Bible is relevant anymore because science has shown otherwise. History, the study of history has shown otherwise. You don't know how many times people have asked me as I, as I speak at various universities outside of our denomination, you're a Christian and an archaeologist? How is that possible? Those are mutually exclusive ideas. Are they, really? Not when you understand the Bible as a book of history. And finally, uh, does the Bible really reveal the future, prophecy and the New World Order? I'm not going to deal as much with the New World Order. I dealt with that two GYCs ago um, in 2017, and you can go on. I'm very thankful I'm not as sick today as I was then, <laughs> trying to get through those presentations. But anyway, uh, we're, we're not going to deal as much with current events here, but we're going to deal with prophecy for sure. And then the last presentation, how do we approach the Bible with serious questions? And here, I'm going to ask for your prayers because I'm going to tackle one of the most serious issues that we're dealing with in our world today, and that's the, the issue of marriage and what is happening in our world concerning the redefinition of marriage and how that is impacting our church and our world, our culture, and looking at it from a biblical perspective and looking at it through the lens of hermeneutics and some of the things that we're going to be talking about in the previous presentations. So I ask for your prayers as we go into this. Our topic for today, how did we get here, the origin of the Bible? We're going to begin with Revelation Inspiration. This is kind of an outline of where we're going. I'm not going to go through it right now, but I want to, uh, to do that with you. The Bible was written by people from many different kinds of backgrounds. I want you to think about that for a moment. In various circumstances, some of these individuals lived in palaces and worked in very high positions in government. We think of Daniel. We think of maybe the writer of Esther 
We don't know who the writer was, but could it have been Mordecai? Or could it have been Esther herself? We have to think about Ezra. We've just been studying Ezra and Nehemiah, right? We have to think about people who were placed in very important positions. We have to think about David, who eventually was king of Israel. Solomon, who was king of Israel and wrote several books of the Bible. The Bible was also written by shepherds like Amos. The Bible was written by taxpayers like Matthew, physicians like Luke, scholars and theologians like Paul. We have a variety of different individuals who wrote the Bible. And Moses, who was in the palace but wrote the first chapters of Scripture, the first book of the Bible, we're told by inspiration, while he was in exile in the wilderness, unlearning the many years that he spent in the palace, the sophistries that he was surrounded with there, but in nature, in God's second book, putting into words through divine inspiration, the book of Genesis. You see, the reformation of Israel began with the reformation of Moses. And as we will see, reformation always begins with Scripture. One can only lead others to a place where we have already been. And Moses was able to do that. Despite these differences and these different settings in which the Bible was written, one thing is clear, and this was something we're going to focus on in this presentation. They all had one thing in common. These men were called by God and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, there's a unity in Scripture that is remarkable because it is a divine unity that we find. Now, what is inspiration? What is revelation? These are big questions, and we don't have much time to tackle them, but let's go to Scripture to define what this is. 2 Timothy 3.16 should be a very familiar verse to most of us. All Scripture, how much? All Scripture, this is a very important concept. Second uh, Timothy does not speak about degrees of inspiration. It doesn't say that some Scriptures are more divinely inspired than others, or some are more authoritative than others. Even the Reformers had trouble with this. Luther created a canon within a canon because he had a Christocentric approach. Those things which spoke, which spoke of Christ were at a higher level than other things. And he disregarded certain entire books of the Bible that he did not like very much because he felt they were not Christocentric. But that's not what Paul says here as he's writing to Timothy. He says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word for inspiration there, God breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine. What is doctrine? That's kind of a, a word that young people don't want to hear today anymore, I think, in many places. Doctrine is not a bad word. <laughs> the Greek term simply means teaching. I'm a teacher. Most young people have had teachers most of their lives. And teaching is something that is important. We are taught at home. We're taught in school. Teaching is important. 
And it says here uh, that Scripture is profitable for teaching or doctrine, for the teachings, for reproof, for correction. We don't like that word very much either. For instruction in righteousness. You want to know how to become more Christ-like? Study the Bible. Learn about righteousness by faith. Understand the transforming power of the Word of God. It will change your life as it has changed millions of individuals in the past. Spirit of Prophecy says in Selected Messages, Volume 1, God has been pleased to communicate His truth. His what? Truth. By the way, there is truth in this world. It's found in this book. God has been pleased to communicate His truth to the world by human agencies, and He Himself, by His Holy Spirit, qualified men and enabled them to do His work. He guided the mind in the selection of what to speak and what to write. The treasure was entrusted to earthen vessels, yet it is nonetheless from heaven. Earthen vessels. I like that terminology because I deal with those all the time as an archaeologist. And they get broken sometimes. But in the hand of the potter and with water and with life, things can change again. The word of the Lord, by the way, when we study the Old Testament, how do we know that it's inspired? Well, if you look at several key phrases that are used again and again, these are some of them. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The word of the Lord, again and again. It's used 269 times, this phrase, in the Old Testament. What is it saying? That what is written here is the word of the Lord. By the way, when you see Lord in caps, what, what word is it? Jehovah, Yahweh, we don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but, uh, but it's the word, the personal covenant name of God, the word of the Lord. Other phrases include the word of God or the words of God, and this idea is repeated 300 times in the Old Testament. You think it's important? You think people wanted you to know what this book actually is? It is not simply the word of men, it is the word of God. 75% of the time this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it refers to visions and prophetic revelations that are directly given to prophets. The word of the Lord comes to them. The word of the Lord is revealed to them. The idea of these messages in the New Testament as well is important. But the idea of these messages being commanded by thy servants, the prophets, in Nehemiah 9.30, indicate that what prophets say is what the Spirit says, that these two things are the same, the Spirit and the work of the word of the prophets. In the context here, the word Spirit is used as well in this passage. Now, what about Jesus? How did Jesus approach the Scriptures? Wouldn't that be important for us to understand as we look at hermeneutics and interpretation? How did Jesus interpret the Bible? How did the apostles interpret the Bible? We have a whole chapter on this, and I don't have time, only touching on it here. But the very first thing that Jesus does when he 
leaves the baptismal waters of the Jordan and John the Baptist as he goes up into the Judean wilderness and he's there 40 days and 40 nights with no food and water. And then in his greatest moment of weakness, Satan comes, right? You know the story. It's recounted in several Gospels. How does Jesus answer Satan when he is tempted in those three instances? It is written. What is written? He is quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from uh, the uh, Pentateuch. Jesus answered him saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It's an important verse for us to memorize too. I have the associate speaker of It Is Written here, so I have to say that they have a good, good title for their ministry, I think. Um, It comes from these passages here in Luke chapter 4. It is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus answers and said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Luke 4.12, it is said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Over and over again, Jesus bases his defense on the authority of Scripture. Do you think he could have based his defense on his own authority? Sure. He's the creator of the universe. He's the creator, the agent of creation of everything that we know, according to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But he chose to place his defense on Scripture. By the way, he didn't say it was written. He didn't say it will be written. He says it is written. The Bible is relevant for every single age. It is not something to be discarded because it was written in a patriarchal age back there somewhere. No, it is written for every single time. This is God's word for every people in every location, everywhere. And if it is important enough for Jesus to base his life on, it's important for us. Let's look at a few other passages of Christ as we think about this. Not one jot or tittle will pass. You remember he says this? Very specifically pointing not only to the words of the Bible, but to the what? The specific letters of the Bible. And and yes, he's speaking here of the law. John chapter 539, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. God and Jesus is always upholding the Bible. In Matthew 27, verse 46, as he's hanging on the cross. And by the way, you always know people's most important things on their heart when it is their last words. Jesus quotes again from Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pointing back to a prophetic psalm that actually predicted the matter, the means of his death. Jesus didn't do anything by accident. Even in his greatest agony, he was pointing back to the scriptures that pointed forward to that specific event in history. History, prophecy, fulfilled. 
that is the view of Scripture. I have to go quickly. That is the view of Scripture. But as the church began to continue to grow, and as the church began to continue to evolve, we could say, the focus on Scripture also changed with time. We know this from history. And I had a whole series uh, a couple of years ago here on the Protestant Reformation and uh, and those, if you're interested, there were five presentations. I'm just highlighting a couple of items here and uh, things that we had didn't talk about there. One of the things that uh, took place during this period was that there were new bases of authority. It was no longer the Bible and the Bible only. There were new bases for authority. And the great Council of Trent, which took place in the 1500s, which was a response over many years as this council of church leaders met in Trento, Italy, uh, a council that met again and again and again to try to figure out how to combat, how to confront, how to eliminate the Protestant Reformation. I will be referring to this several times, but we have a new exhibit opening up in exactly 12 days at Southern Adventist University at our archaeological museum that has some of the rarest documents in existence today. It is called From Script to Scripture, The History of the Bible. We have some of the rarest Bibles that will be on display, but in addition to that, the rarest elements of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. One of the things that we have are the original Council of Trent documents from 1564. In, on April 8, 1546, the Council of Trent made a decision that the Bible would not consist only of the 66 books that are in most Bibles, but it decided that the deuterocanonical books should be considered canonical just as the other 39 books of the Old Testament. You see, Catholic Bibles are different than most Protestant Bibles. There are more books involved there. First and Second Maccabees, Tobit, uh, various uh, books that uh, we don't have, that I don't have in this Bible here. Why were they added? Interesting question. Who decides, well, yeah, who decides what books should be added to the Bible? And who decides how the canon of Scripture, that is, the whole of Scripture, how, how it's formed? This is a big question. Protestants never have accepted the apocryphal books as part of Scripture, and there were reasons for that. The first reason is there's no evidence that they derive from biblical prophets. Within those documents themselves, there's not that internal evidence that we have in many of the other books of the Bible. Secondly, there are historical compromises in the books. That is, there are historical incongruities that put them at a level a little bit different from Scripture that has been accepted. Certain parts are found only in Greek. Certain books are found only in Greek. There are only Greek manuscripts. And we know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So this testifies to their late addition and not being part of that canon 
that had been established already before 400 BC or written before 400 BC. These come from much later. Number five, none of the New Testament writers quote from these books. That's significant because the Bible interprets itself. And as we see Jesus and the New Testament writers, this is only one count from one scholar from Princeton University who says there are as many as 2,200 quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Not allusions, not references kind of back to the Old Testament, but strict quotations. You cannot have the New Testament without the Old Testament. And the deuterocanonical books are not part of that corpus, according to the New Testament writers, period. The New Testament only recognizes, in fact, this is Jesus, only recognizes as he is on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, it says that he expounds the scriptures to them, and it says specifically uh, that he does so from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, referring to the three divisions of the Old Testament according to Jewish tradition. He doesn't refer to any other books. Number seven, the early church fathers who quote extensively from the Old Testament and New Testament do not quote from the Apocrypha much and certainly not on the same level. They do quotes here and there, but not on the same level as scripture. And finally, none of the lists of the Hebrew canon in early Jewish sources include any of the apocryphal books. They simply are not there. So when Paul is writing to Timothy in the first century and saying all scripture, what scripture is he referring to? The Old Testament. And for him, all scripture does not seem on the basis of the evidence to have included any of these deuterocanonical books that we have at the Council of Trent. So why were they added? This is a good question. Some scholars have pointed out because certain doctrines of the Catholic Church are simply indefensible in the Bible, but seem to have some illusions in these deutero or extra-canonical books. Purgatory, for example, which more recently has kind of come under criticism even within Catholicism. The, the basic fundamental issue when we deal with the formation of the canon, and I cannot go into much detail today, there's a great article that I can point you to later on, is this question. Does the church create scripture? Does the church create scripture? Another way of putting that, does scripture derive from human authority? Do human beings, are they the ones primarily responsible for deciding what is scriptural and what is not. You see, if the Bible is divinely inspired, it has a divine character and characteristic that stands on its own. That is certainly recognized as authoritative but that is canonical because it is divinely inspired, period. This is a very different position that Protestants take, as I've just described it, from what Catholicism does. 
Catholicism believes that the church creates scripture. Protestants believe that scripture creates the church. Are you with me? There's a fundamental difference. Scripture, as it is divinely inspired and as the writer, the human writer, is writing it, I'm not saying by verbal inspiration, he's not being dictated exactly what to write. There's a process involved that is a mystery. It is as mysterious, by the way, as the divine human mystery of Jesus Christ. And we can get caught up in all kinds of debates about it, but it is remaining a mystery. How can Jesus be 100% divine and 100% human? And the, the course of, of discussion on that matter has always emphasized the one over the other, depending on what position you take. And it's very difficult to find a balance because we simply cannot wrap our minds around it. The scripture is the same. It is produced by the divine Holy Spirit through human agency. But like Jesus, who never sinned, Scripture remains the infallible Word of God. So, does the church create Scripture, or does Scripture create the church? The Protestant reformers, as they rediscovered Scripture, Scripture became the foundation of the church. The Council of Trent maintained in response to Protestantism, and this is from a very recent uh, authoritative book in German, that the canon cannot be derived from Scripture itself. That is, the canon, the, the, the decision over these uh, books cannot be derived from the Bible itself. This is a very different teaching. And they did so based on what Catholicism teaches. Vatican II, which took place in the 1960s, another big council that took place in the 1960s, uh, stated this, therefore both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. You have two authorities established in the Catholic Church, scripture and tradition. And notice what this statement says. This is an official document of the Catholic Church. They are to be venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. They stand equally with one another. Wow. So traditions do no longer derive from Scripture. Traditions are at the same level as Scripture. One is not subsumed over the other. By the way, that's not, it's not just two. The Catholic Church stands on three legs of authority. Sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium, which is the papal councils, the cardinals, that decide how to interpret scripture and tradition. Those three elements work together. This is not something in ancient history, by the way. Let me share with you a quote from Pope Francis from 2013. The interpretation, this is, by the way, a uh, presentation he made to the Pontifical Biblical Commission. These are scholars, Roman Catholic scholars, that are um, employed uh, by the Catholic Church, and this is a, a huge conference of scholars. He says, the interpretation of the Holy Scriptures cannot be only an individual scientific effort, but must always confront itself with, be inserted within, and authenticated by the living tradition of the church. 
This norm is essential to specify the correct relationship between exegesis, that's the science of interpreting the Bible, and the magisterium of the church. Notice that all three of those elements are in this statement. So what is the result of putting tradition at the same level as scripture? Tradition eventually overcame scripture. And we have doctrines, teachings in the church that no longer are teachings that are founded in scripture, but founded on tradition. We can't go into all of these. If you want to listen to my seminar of two years ago, you can do that. And once these traditions became established, and once they became dogma in the church, they had to be defended by the church. And the church chose to defend those not only with ideas, but militarily. We have the Crusades from 1096 to 1292, trying to reestablish uh, church presence in uh, Palestine in the Middle East. We have Pope Julius II, known as the warrior pope, who interestingly, interestingly enough uh, reigned as pope just prior to Luther's placing the 95 Theses on the doors of Wittenberg Castle Church. He was a warrior pope. <laughs> this is Erasmus's interesting depiction of Julius II being barred from entering heaven. Erasmus was a Protestant. We'll talk about him in a moment. Uh, Julius II is shown just after death, standing at the gates of heaven, military armor under his papal robes, demanding that St. Peter open the door. You see St. Peter here? And here's the Pope. Okay, underneath him, he's wearing medieval armor. If you've ever been into castles in Europe, you know what those look like. Or if you've been to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, you know what they look like. He's standing there. Julius has had his hand has his hand on a huge golden key, but it fortunately, unfortunately does not fit the door to heaven. It turns out to be the key of worldly power, not a key to the kingdom of heaven. Despite Julius's furious demands to clear the way in, Peter, though only a mere fisherman, as Julius has pointed out, won't budge. I admit only those, Peter tells Julius in a, in a sideline that is accompanying this artwork, who clothe the naked, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, and visit the poor. That's a chastisement probably to all of us here today. The church changed its hermeneutic. The church changed the basis of its authority but that also did not go without challenge. Last year, I now have to say two years ago, because it was in 2018, I had the privilege of visiting the Waldensian Valleys for the first time in Switzerland. I've lived in Europe um, on a number of occasions, but unfortunately, I even have skied in Switzerland on a number of occasions, but I had never been to the Waldensian Valleys until 2018, which is a sad commentary. But I will say this, it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. 
I was with a group of scholars and theologians. We had just come from Rome where we were participating in an international conference sponsored by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, ironically in Rome, on eschatology, which is the study of last-day events. We had toured the sites, visited the Colosseum, visited the Roman Forum. We had visited the Vatican, visited the stairs that Martin Luther uh, crawled up on in order to receive an indulgence for his grandfather. We had seen all those things, and now we were in the mountains of northern Italy, and it was a moving experience to be there. We visited uh, Torre Pellice, and we went up into the mountains where some of the uh, Waldensian houses have been reconstructed to, to, to look like the time in which uh, people lived in these valleys uh, during the early period of the Middle Ages. The seminary, where young people were trained for years from the scriptures in order to become missionaries to go out. By the way, let me say something here. It's important that we have this series here at GYC because we need to know first what our message is before we go into mission. Those two are intertwined. Mission is amazing. It's wonderful. But know what you're doing before you go. Now, that doesn't mean that you will not be taught when you go. And there's an argument to be made that when you thrust yourself into mission, you thrust yourself into God's work and he will provide the way. But do not underestimate the importance of education. These young men and young women were trained to go out as missionaries with small pieces of scripture sewn into their garments. Ellen White writes in Great Controversy, as they, as they would go into the universities and the major centers of influence in their day, sharing scripture carefully with this person and this person that might be affected by the word of God. I remember some of us hiking up to this point where a small pillar of stones has been erected in commemoration of an event that took place here. You see the Roman church sent its armies or the armies of those that controlled up to these valleys and it was from these cliffs that hundreds of Waldensians, men, women, and children were forced off the edge to their deaths. I was asked by our tour leader Dr. Gerard Domstig, who is a church history professor, to preach at a Waldensian church that Sabbath. Wow, was that experience, an experience. I had never preached in a Waldensian church, and uh, that was an amazing thing. This is not me, by the way, but this is the type of place that I preached. I have never preached in a pulpit elevated like this before. It was a new experience. I'm not a person that's very fond of heights, um, but uh, it was a new experience. I was asked to preach specifically a sermon and a presentation that I had given here at GYC a couple of years ago on the ecumenical movement and what was happening what is happening today in Catholicism and in Protestantism. It was a fitting place to do that. 
It was fitting because that very day, that Sabbath, the Pope was making his way to Geneva. And for the first time in history, in 2018, on that Sabbath that I was standing in a pulpit like this, was going to address the World Council of Churches in the capital of Protestantism in Europe, Geneva. So there was an irony to that, it wasn't there? Here we were as a group of Adventist scholars and other Adventists and even some other Christians meeting in this small little Waldensian church as Protestantism was slowly and is slowly eroding the fundamentals of what brought it to fruition in the first place. By the way, why is the pulpit raised up? Not for the preacher. What is at the center of the Catholic Church? The altar where the Mass is done. The Waldensians decided, and Protestantism changed church architecture forever by placing the pulpit at the front and center apse of the church because that's where the Word of God was proclaimed. In fact, this is the Waldensian symbol and it's a little bit dark, but I don't know if you see, this is a Bible, and on top of that Bible is a candle, and it is the light of the Word of God that illumines the soul. In fact, it says there in Latin, a light shines in the darkness. We don't call them the dark ages for nothing. They're called the dark ages for a reason. And just as John in John chapter 1 says, a light shone in the darkness as Jesus came into this world, so as scripture was opened for the first time in the vernacular of the local language, a light shone in the darkness again. These Waldensian missionaries trained in these small little valleys in the Swiss Alps. These Waldenses, says Rhaenerus, were in nearly every country. They are multiplied throughout all lands, says Sundarus. They have infested a thousand cities, says Caesarius. By the way, I don't think he was very in favor of the Waldenses. They spread their contagion through almost the whole Latin world, Amen. says Siaconius. Says Newberg, they became like the sand of the sea without number. Some of them lost their lives and never returned. Some of them continued their ministry in these inhospitable places and never returned. But their fruits remain with them today. By the way, I should just mention this. Pope Francis, as he has been doing with a number of different entities for the last several years, has extended an official apology to the Waldensian Christians today. He's doing this to the Muslims, for the Crusades, and for other entities as well. It's very interesting how the modern Waldensian church responded. They said, I'm sorry, we cannot accept your apology because we were not the ones persecuted and you were not the ones persecuting them. It remains for those who died 
to make that decision. Probably the most moving experience for me was going into one of the caves where the Waldensians hid. Some of you may know the story of men, women, and children that hid in these caves and how the soldiers, as they approached, they thought they were in a safe place, but as the soldiers approached and as they came, they came actually over the top of the mountain and there was an entrance to the cave from the top in addition to the one that they had entered in from the side and they recognized where they were. Rather than risk going in themselves and living with the consequences or dying with the consequences, they decided to do something else. They decided to build a huge fire in front of the entrances and the smoke of those fires killed thousands that were in that cave or hundreds in that cave, men, women, and children. In Castle's book, Christ and Antichrist, page 257, he quotes from Mead. Mead has calculated from good authorities that in the war with the Albigenses and the Waldenses, there perished of these people in France alone, one million. Great Controversy, page 78, says, the persecutions visited for many centuries upon this God-fearing people were endured by them with a patience and constancy that honored their Redeemer. Notwithstanding the crusades against them and the inhuman butchery to which they were subjected, they continued to send out their missionaries to scatter the precious truth. They were hunted to death, yet their blood watered the seed sown, and it failed not of yielding fruit. We've been working on this new exhibit at Southern Adventist University for over a year. We know that this book in particular was owned by a Waldensian because handwritten in the center of the crest is the name of the owner. And the last name is a typical, well-known Waldensian name. The only other book that exists is in the, National Libra sorry, is in the library of Nice in France. Why are there only two? Because not only were the Waldensians hunted to death, their Bibles were burned. The church didn't want people to have the Bible in their native language. A few years later, a Waldensian Christian from the original Greek and Hebrew, because that Bible was translated from the Latin Vulgate, but from the original Greek and Hebrew translated the first entire Bible into the French language. Just a few years later, in 1535, we have a copy, an original copy of the Olivetan Bible in our exhibit. We'll be having that. By the way, if you come to Southern, it'll be open for the next year and a half to two years. Olivetan, he has another name as well, but he was known as Olivetan, was a Waldensian Christian who translated this Bible in a matter of about two years from, from the Greek and the Hebrew into French. He sent the Bible to his cousin, a young man in his 20s, who read the Bible for the first time in his life in his own French language, and it converted his soul. And he became a Protestant believer. We all know his name, the cousin of Olivetan. His name was John Calvin. Wow. And John Calvin 
at the age of 25, writes the introduction, the foreword, the preface, if you will, to the Olivetan Bible of 1535 at the age of 25. So I want to close this session with this picture in Geneva, the capital of the Reformation, where on the wall there are standing the great reformers of old. They look old here. They all have beards and they look rather austere. But we have to remember that these reformers were not old men. They were young people. Luther was still within GYC age. I think the cap, don't want to offend anybody, but my understanding that the cap is around 35. He was 34 when he nailed the 95 theses on the Wittenberg church wall. His compatriot, Melanchthon, who was as much a giant of a scholar as Luther was, they worked in tandem together for years. Melanchthon wrote huge amounts. Melanchthon really wrote the Augsburg Confession that, that, that was defended by the princes of Germany and against the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and, 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 and mainstreamed Protestantism. Melanchthon was 21 years old when he was called to Wittenberg by Luther to be a young professor of Greek. He was 23 when Luther nailed the 95 theses on the walls, on the doors. These were young people, young men. John Kelvin, less than 25 years of age when he was converted. The future is not only among the old, it's among the young. And do not think that you're not able to be one of those people. These were men of learning, they were men of scripture, they make what we do with the Bible look like peanuts compared to what they ended up doing with Scripture in terms of their studies and their depth. So what made these men stand for truth though the heavens fall? What prompted them to risk everything even if it meant giving up their lives? We see them standing here. What was it? It was Scripture. By the way, we see them standing here holding what? Every single one of them holding the Bible. It was scripture. Ellen White writes this, that the scripture is the basis of all reforms. But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. As the basis of what? All reforms. It is on the basis of scripture. Yes, prayer. Yes, an experience with God. But how do you have an experience with God? Through his word, through scripture. That's the basis of all reforms. And that is the basis upon which we must return if we are to become students of the word and faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Our next presentation in two minutes will be Do Historical Matters Really Matter? The Bible, History, and Science. That, this laid the foundation. But we will see in this next presentation how that, how that foundation after the Reformation was dismantled and how we are living today in an age where we have everything questioned. This presentation will be very important for those. How many of you are attending university right now? Only a few. How many of you have attended university? How many of you are at a secular university, that is a state university or community college? All right, a few of you. 
all right? How many of you are planning to go to college in the future? Maybe some of you are high school students. You need to be here for this next presentation because this is the world that we're in today and we need to understand. We're going to look at archaeology. We're going to look at history. We're going to look at the Bible. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had. Bless our time this morning together in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.